The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Joshua chapter 5. The title of my message for you today is Finding Victory Through Surrender. Doesn't that sound so backwards? I mean, just chalk it up as another one of those many paradoxes that you find scattered throughout the scriptures. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you got to lay it down. He said, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. He said, if you want to be great in the kingdom, then learn to become the servant of all. And let me throw this on top of that pile. If you want to find victory, if you want to walk in victory, then you've got to learn the secret of surrender. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. But to set things up, the story that we're going to look, on, look at today happens just prior to the events that we're so familiar with, the tumbling of the walls of Jericho. It's one of the most well-known and beloved stories in the entire Bible. As a kid, I can remember being in Sunday school and we had this song that celebrated what God did through Joshua, through Joshua at Jericho. Joshua, that's a new word for you. Jot that down, look it up later. <laughs> we would sing this little ditty, it went like this. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Oh, you know it. You sound great, by the way. I love it. It's an absolute classic, right? And for good reason. It's, it makes great theater. I mean, Israel's victory on that day was as incredible as it was improbable. How many of you know that walls aren't supposed to come down and tumble just because people shout or blow a trumpet? Yet that's exactly what happens in the story before us. Of course, the climax of the story is so dramatic, so miraculous, that it can sometimes overshadow an equally amazing event that happens just before it. Yet without that other event, the walls never come tumbling down. And so for today, what I want to do is take a light and shine it on that part of the story. We find it in Joshua 5, beginning in verse 13. It says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went over to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, came his reply. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, and he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Just a fascinating little vignette that we have here. And Verse 13 places the events of this story at a place near Jericho. Now, we know that after the Lord led the Israelites through the Jordan River on dry ground, miraculously, I might add, that they came to camp at a place called Gilgal, and they used that area as a, a staging ground for all of their forays and battle escapades in the Promised Land. Well, evidently, at some point while they were camped there, Joshua snuck over to get a closer look at Jericho. 
Perhaps he did this to clear his head and to try to come up with a, a game plan or a strategy for taking down the walled city. Now, at this point, I want to interject something. God had already promised the Israelites that he was going to give them every place that the sole of their foot touched. And yet, that didn't mean that all of Israel's enemies would just roll over and raise up the white flag of surrender. He'd given them a promise, but they still had to go in and fight to take possession of the promise. Let me preach at you for a minute. What was true of them then is equally true for every believer in here today. They had a promised land. Jesus spoke of a promised life. You can read about it in John 10, where he said, I've come that you might have life and that you might experience it to the max, that you might have abundant life, victorious life, that your life might flourish and overflow with God's blessings. But that life isn't just given to you. The enemy doesn't just roll over. All forward progress in the Christian life must be hard fought and won through battle. In other words, there's no breakthrough without a battle. Jesus said it like this. He said, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence and the violent sees it. You know, the more you pursue God, the more opposition you're going to face. This is one of the things that keeps people on the wrong side of their destiny. I remember being so discouraged when I first learned this truth. I thought that, you know, if I gave my life to the Lord, everything would just start to fall into place and things would go beautifully for me. Boy, was I in for a rude awakening. The more you pursue the Lord, the more the enemy comes against you and a, a target is placed on your back. But there are enemies that are squatting on territory in your life that belongs to Jesus. And so you need to drive out those enemies. And that's what we find Israel doing here. Now, the first battle that they faced took place at Jericho. Now, you should know this. Jericho wasn't the largest or most populous or even the most important city in Canaan. However, it may just have been the most strategic. Its significance lied in its location. You see, Jericho is located, if you were to look at a map of Israel, it's kind of smack dab right in the middle. And it, it's found in this hilly region that kind of populates that area of Israel. Now, this made it the perfect place to launch a military campaign. Because those hills, that mountainous region, they form kind of a natural division between the, the northern region and the southern region of Israel. So if, if Israel, in other words, could take down Jericho, then they could hold the high ground. We all know how important having the high ground is from a military vantage point. And then from there, they could use that as a, a staging area and they could form a wedge between the enemies to the north and the enemies to the south. They could effectively break the back of their enemy. And then from there, they could go down into the south and one by one pick off those enemies before moving north and finishing off the job in the north. And if you read through the rest of the book of Joshua, you'll discover that this is exactly what they did. And again, from a military perspective, Joshua's strategy for conquering the land was absolutely brilliant. Now, that's not just me saying that, but this is something that history bears out. In fact, military leaders and strategists marvel over the genius of how Israel took over Canaan. In fact, if you go back to World War I, 
when British Field Marshal Edmund H. Allenby set out to recapture and liberate Israel from the Ottoman Empire, he consulted the book of Joshua. And he essentially copied verbatim to a T what Israel had done 3,500 years earlier. South and then finished his campaign in the north. It's incredible. Of course, we know this wasn't Joshua's plan. This was God's idea. It's almost like he knew. Go figure. And yet, while that made the most sense to begin their conquest in Canaan uh, by attacking Jericho, that doesn't mean it was going to be a cakewalk. That's because Jericho, as most of you, I'm sure, are already aware, was well fortified by a series of imposing and seemingly impenetrable walls. Before you even got to the first wall, you had to deal with a 15-foot-high retaining wall. Then beyond that, if you could somehow scale that, you would come to the outer wall of the city that was about 25 feet high. And if you got past that, there at the crest of the hill, encircling the inner city, was another wall that measured 25 more feet tall. In other words, if you were standing at ground level, the top of the tallest wall was 65 feet above you. Imagine yourself looking up at a six and a half story building. That's what Joshua and the Israelites had to contend with. You know, prior to their arrival in the promised land, Moses was speaking to the Israelites about the large cities they would soon face in battle. And he said of those cities that some of them have walls that seem to stretch up to heaven. He was no doubt referencing Jericho when he said that. Now, the typical strategy for taking out a walled city like Jericho would be to lay siege to it. That was a common practice in those days. And, and, and what you would do to lay siege to a city is you would take your army and you would essentially encircle it so that nothing could get in and nothing could come out. You couldn't be resupplied with resources. It was an effective strategy, but the problem with this is it took a long time. Depending on the amount of resources that the city had already you know, stored up within their walls, it could last for months or even years. And this posed a problem for Israel because we learn earlier in the chapter, actually in the 12th verse of chapter 5, that they had begun to run out of food. That's because as soon as they made their way into the promised land, God stopped providing them with their daily allotment of heavenly manna. We read about it in verse 12 where it says, the manna stopped the day after they ate the food from the land. For the 40 years prior to that, as they were wandering through the wilderness, they never had to worry about where their next meal was going to come from. Imagine you just step out of your tent in the morning and, and they're covering the earth as, as these little wafers, this, this manna. Manna means what is it? They didn't know what it was, but you, it was edible and, and it apparently had enough um, nourishment in it, enough fiber, enough, uh, you know, things that your body needs that it sustained them. And, and so God provided miraculously for them in this way for 40 years. But once they arrived in the land, God was signifying, you've come, you've made it. So he withdrew the manna, but that also put a clock on the Israelites. It magnified their need to establish a more permanent living solution and, and, and secure a more stable food source. And, and so Joshua is the leader. It's his job to come up with a strategy to defeat Jericho. And unfortunately for him, he doesn't have a lot of options. 
He doesn't have any siege weapons to work with or battering rams. And, and let's not forget that, that, that with their food sources now dwindling at a steady rate, the clock is always ticking. And so one day he wanders over to Jericho. He's a, a former military guy, and, or he is a military guy. So he's just kind of trying to think through a strategy. And while there, a man approaches out of nowhere. And this guy has his sword drawn, and it's in his hand. Now, it would have been bad enough if his sword was sheathed on his side, but it's in his hand, thus signifying he was looking and ready for a fight. Now, in moments like that, we all kind of have like a, a fight or flight reflex that instinctively kicks in. You know, when, when something scary happens, you're either running or you're, you're ready to fight. And, and Joshua was no coward. I mean, he was a military guy and steeped in the art of warfare. And so instinctively, as this guy begins to move towards him, rather than running away, Joshua moves towards the armed stranger. And before the guy can even talk, Joshua confronts him and he asks this question. We find it in verse 13. He says, are you for us or for our enemies? In other words, should I be preparing for a fight or are you here to fight with us? And here's what I want you to know. This is the wrong question. That's the first point in our outline this morning. Joshua asks the wrong question. Now, on the surface, his question makes all kinds of logical sense, right? I mean, he's just trying to determine if this individual is a friend or a foe. But let me tell you where he errs. The mistake that Joshua makes is in presupposing that only two options exist. Either you're for us or against us. But then he must have been so surprised when the, the, the man responded by saying, neither. <laughs> he didn't know what to do with that. He didn't have a category for that. And here and we can make another application for our lives. You know, something about God that you should probably know is that he refuses to be bound by the restrictions and the limitations that we try to put him under. He, he can't be backed into a corner. He can't be shoved into a box. And yet... Isn't that what we often try to do with him? I mean, I'll just speak personally. There have been so many times in my own prayer life where I'll essentially, in so many words, I'll try to present God with a series of options. There's some challenge that I'm facing, some obstacle that I'm trying to overcome, and I'll say, Lord, I've thought this through, and, and, and there are a couple of different ways we could go as, as the church or with our school or in our family, whatever. And, and there's option A, there's option B, and there's option C. And, and, and usually I'll try to talk him into the one I like best. You know what I'm talking about. Lord, I've thought it through. I really think we should go through option B, and, and it makes the most sense. And so if you could just jump on board and, and breathe fresh power into that, that would be great. Now, whenever I try to do that and steer the Lord in that kind of way, I find more often than not that he typically goes with option D. None of the above. <laughs> and that's essentially what we see happening here. Joshua presents this man with a series of options, and he goes with neither. And we would do well to remember that God has categories and options that we're not aware of. As it's said in Isaiah 55, verse 9, let's go ahead and read this together out loud. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
God says, we're not thinking on an equal playing field here. I've got access to more information than you could dream of. As a baseline for the difference between your thought life and God's, just start with, put a measuring line between earth and heaven. <laughs> That's what the Lord says. And so Joshua asks the wrong question. And whenever you ask the wrong question, you're bound to come away with the wrong answer. He wants to know if this guy is on his side. But with his statement, the man seems to flip the question on its head, and he effectively says to Joshua, the real question is, are you on my side? In other words, what he's saying here is, I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. And this is really the question we need to wrestle through. You know, during the height of the Civil War, one of President Lincoln's advisors remarked to him at one point, gee whiz, you know, I don't know if he said gee whiz. Who says gee whiz? I do. He said, you know, it's good to know, Mr. President, that God is on the side of the union. And Mr. Lincoln, in response, said this, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Oh, preach, Mr. Lincoln. Praise the Lord. And this should always be our goal in our prayer lives, to, to align ourselves with heaven, to make sure that we're on God's side. Daniel 9.14 says, the Lord God is right in everything he does. Knowing that to be true. It should change our approach. Instead of trying to convince God to align with our plans, our ideas, our agendas, our main, the main thrust of our prayer life should be, Lord, what is it that you're doing and how do I get behind you? How do I get on board with what your plans are? You see, Jesus in the model prayer taught his disciples to say this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's his will that we're to be pursuing. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, pastor. Doesn't the Bible say that God is for us? And to that, I would say, absolutely, yes, and amen. And praise the Lord, that's true. You find that in Romans 8. God is for you, but he's not beholden to you. Does that make sense? He's not a genie in a bottle that you can wield and direct and, and, and kind of, you know, t tell him where to go and what to do. No, no, God is for you to the extent and to the degree that your plans align with his heart. He's ready to fight for you, but only when you're aligned with his will. This is the lesson that Joshua is learning in this moment. He needs to decide if he's going to be on God's side. And so the man reveals himself to Joshua in an interesting way. He says, I'm come not to join your side, but I'm here as the commander of the Lord's army. Now, I want to draw your attention to the word LORD there. It's in all caps, you'll notice. Now, whenever you bump into the word LORD in the Old Testament, and it's in all caps, it's not just some generic title for God, but rather that is a reference to his very name. The Hebrew word there is Yehovah. You know the name of God. And so this is the very name by which God revealed himself to Moses sometime earlier at the burning bush. And in that encounter, 
the Lord meets with Moses and he commissions Moses and he introduces himself to Moses. And in the course of that conversation, at one point, Moses says to the Lord, but what if I go to Israel and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to deliver you. And they say, who is he? What's his name? And to that, God responds to Moses and says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, Yehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you. And then he concludes by saying this, this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And so this mysterious Figure This man who appears out of nowhere says, I'm the commander of Jehovah's armies. And he lays hold of that name and Joshua recognizes instantly that word and it must have shook him. But then he, his attention is drawn to this other aspect of what he says. He says, I'm here as the commander and for this purpose have I now come. And, and that must have really shook Joshua because that was his title. He's thinking, wait a minute. I thought I was the commander of the Lord's army. <laughs> and yet now he's, have, he, he's being uh, challenged in his position and in his authority. And as this unravels, it's all happening in real time. But I have to wonder if Joshua was brought back to something that God had said way back in Exodus 23. Let's read this together out loud. It's a bit lengthy, but I just, I feel so much power gets released when we verbally uh, express the word of God. So read this out loud with me. See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. So God says, before you go into the battle, I'm going to send someone to lead you in every fight. And if you listen to him, your enemies will be his enemies. Now, in this moment, Joshua realizes he has a decision to make. He could challenge the man's claim to his authority and he could try to fight him, or he could surrender to him. What does Joshua do? We read about it at the end of verse 14. It says, then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, and he asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Ooh, this is the right question. A moment ago, Joshua asks the wrong question. He tries to dictate, dictate the terms of the conversation. He's barking orders, but now he's reporting for duty. This is the right question. What message does my Lord have for his servant? When he hits the deck, Joshua chooses the path of total and absolute surrender. By falling face down in reverence, that word reverence can also be translated as worship. So picture Joshua now face down on the earth. And from this place of absolute surrender, he asks, for his marching orders. Such a dramatic shift. Instead of barking commands, he's reporting for duty. Instead of assuming the role of the one who's in authority, Joshua now refers to himself as the Lord's servant, and he calls the man in front of him, my Lord. This is another 
clue that gives us insight into who it is that Joshua is confronted by. You see, if this had been a mere angel, then certainly he wouldn't have received Joshua's worship, nor would he have allowed him to call him Lord. That's something that is reserved only for God. As an example of this, whenever you find angels, you know, people trying to worship angels in the Bible, they are always, you know, rebuked and say, don't do that. Revelation chapter 22, verse 9 is one example. John, the beloved, is caught up to the third heaven. He gives this He's given this incredible vision of what is to come and the heavenly scene. And in response, he's he's overwhelmed. It's more than he can take. And he falls at the feet of this angel and he begins to worship. And immediately the angel says to him, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of God, just like you and the prophets worship God. And so he redirects his worship to God. Now, the fact that this individual receives Joshua's worship and actually encourages it, allows him to call him Lord, indicates to us that this is none other than God. Joshua comes face to face in this moment with almighty God. Now, theologians have a term that they use to refer to these these scattered references to visible manifestations of the invisible God that we find throughout the Old Testament. They call them theophanies. And a theophany is whenever God decides to invade the time-space continuum and reveal himself either to an individual or to a group of people. And, and, And there are scattered throughout the Old Testament various instances where this occurs. The first one is in Genesis 3, where we're told that in the cool of the day, God would walk with Adam and Eve. How beautiful must that have been? just taking an evening stroll with the Lord, and evidently he took on, you know, a physical form, and he would just walk with them, and they would shoot the breeze, and they would talk about their day with the Lord. God shows up again in uh, Genesis 18. This time he takes on the form of a traveler, and he approaches Abraham and Sarah, and he delivers this prophecy. He says, the following year, you're about to have a child, the child of promise. And, and then he shows up again in Genesis 32, but this time he comes as a wrestler. And he wrestles with Jacob over the course of an entire night at the brook called Jabbok before he has this fateful encounter with his brother Esau. And there's all kinds of significance to that. And the following morning, Jacob says, wow, I've seen the, the very face of God. And so he calls that place Peniel. And here we find the Lord showing up yet again And this time he takes on the form of a general to confront Joshua. Now, let me add just another layer to that. And this is absolutely amazing, something to consider. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Here's what I take that to mean. Every time you bump into one of these Old Testament theophanies, what that person is seeing in that moment is a pre-incarnate appearance of none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the very image of the invisible God. So it was Jesus that Adam and Eve strolled through the Garden of Eden with. It was Jesus that Abraham and Sarah encountered there as a traveler. You say, I don't know, you might be reading into that. Well, take it up with Jesus himself, because in John chapter chapter 8, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he did see it and was glad, John eight fifty six. 
So he says, I was the guy who met with Abraham. Jesus is the one who wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32. And he's the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's the cloud that covered Israel by day. He's the rock that provided water for them in the wilderness. And he's the general who confronts Joshua in this moment. Powerful. And so if it's Jesus standing before him and Joshua is coming to terms with that reality, he doesn't have language for it yet, but he knows this is the Lord. And so he surrenders. And can I just suggest to you that this is the only appropriate response for an individual who finds themselves confronted by the reality of who Jesus is. I'll say it like this. Jesus isn't just the kind of person you bring onto your board in an advisory role. He has no interest in being your co-pilot. I know there was like a bumper sticker years ago when that was a thing and it was popular to say, Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He wants to be your commander. And this story highlights that point well, I think. Amen. And so if we could just picture Jesus in the room today and he's confronting us. You have a choice, just like Joshua did. You can either challenge his claim of authority on your life or you can fall on your face before him and worship him and declare him your Lord. But those are the only two options that exist. And here's what I find. I find like many people are are willing and even excited about the prospect of inviting Jesus to be their savior. You know what I mean? It's quite easy to convince someone that, hey, Jesus wants to be your savior. He's going to forgive you of your sins. He's going to take away your guilt. He's going to, he's going to wash you and cleanse you and, and and you'll be renewed and give you a new heart and you'll go to heaven when you die. It's like, yes, 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 yes. I want Jesus as my savior. But while it's easy to convince people to make Jesus their savior, it's much more difficult to convince them to make him Lord. But it's not an either or kind of thing. We would do well to remember that Jesus is not Savior or Lord, but he is always referred to as both Savior and Lord. One example, when the angels found themselves over the fields of the shepherds who were watching their flocks by night on the very night when Jesus made his entrance into this world, read with me what they said to those shepherds. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 11. Let's read it together out loud. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Notice once again how he calls Jesus both Savior and Lord. Again, it's an all or nothing kind of thing. When you ask Jesus to be your Savior, but you don't welcome him into your life as Lord, you really haven't given your life to him. You're basically saying you want to remain in control. And in those instances, you're not following Jesus, but rather issuing an invitation for him to follow you. Does that make sense? And it doesn't work like that. You must surrender all. Oh, I love the words of that old hymn that puts it so eloquently. It says, all to Jesus, all all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. Our unequivocal, total, and complete surrender is what God asks for, rather what he demands. 
Now, the definition of the word surrender means to submit to another's authority. Can I ask you, have you done that with Jesus? To make Jesus your Lord is to surrender every area of your life over to him. That includes your time, what you do with your week, how you schedule your life. What would your calendar say about your priorities? What are you doing with your time? Is God a priority? Is he Lord over your calendar? Not just your time, but your talents, your gifts. That includes your work and and what you do with your life vocationally and your relationships and your dating life. And so your time, your talents, and your treasure. Does God have authority over your checkbook and how you use your resources? In all these ways, God says, I need to be Lord of all or I'm not interested in being Lord at all. And if he doesn't have the final say in every sphere of your life, then you're fooling yourself. You can't just make him Lord of certain areas and then retain control of others. Yeah, isn't that what we often do? Lord, you can have all access past all these rooms, but then there are those certain closets that say restricted access or, you know, it, it's, the door is locked. And Jesus is saying, I want those keys. And here's the thing. We think that when we surrender to him, we're losing. But surrender is really how you win. To resist him in any area of your life is to invite frustration and futility. It's to keep yourself in brokenness and bondage. When Jesus moves into his space, it is only to bless you. It's only to heal you. It's only to bring you into victory. And so every area where you're saying, God, I can't let you in here, that's an area that the enemy is squatting on. It is territory that he is wanting to take over so that he can bless you. His goal is your flourishing in every way, shape, or form. So to fight him, is keep to keep yourself from victory. And that brings us to our final point this morning. Victory comes through surrender. Victory comes through surrender. We see this in measure in verse 15. After Joshua asks, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Jesus replies, take off your shoes. Before we even get to that, the message, which you'll read about in chapter six, he says, I just... I want intimacy with you. I want you to take your shoes off. I want to dwell with you. And there's a couple layers to this. Number one, I believe he's referencing that story from Exodus chapter three, the burning bush experience that Moses had with the Lord. And in that scene, I mean, there's so many parallels between that event and this one. And one of many is that in both instances, God says, remove your shoes. The ground you're standing on is holy. And so I believe in an intentional way, God is referencing that story because he wants to give Joshua his own burning bush encounter. He doesn't want Joshua relying on Moses' experience. He doesn't want Joshua living by secondhand faith. Can I just preach for a moment? You need to have your own encounter with the Lord. God has no grandchildren, only children. And so he needs to come to you and he's confronting you and he wants to give you your own encounter with him. And he wants to say, in effect, as I was with Moses, so I shall be with you. And that's part of it. But there's another layer to this, and this is something that my, I remember my dad drawing out years ago, and I just love this thought. He said, what if, you know, there's this thought that removing your shoes is a sign of honor and humility and reverence, and I agree with all of that. He goes, but what about this? God is moving in the earth beneath Joshua, and it's holy ground, and so he's saying, I want closeness. I don't want anything to come between us, even if it's the, the thickness of 
of the leather on the bottom of your sandals. Just take that off so that there's nothing that stands between me and you. And I just love that thought. As God invites Joshua into this place of intimacy, and once he's there and he's just in the presence of the Lord, if you were to read on in chapter 6, God unfolds the strategy that he wants Joshua and the Israelites to use to take down Jericho. And it's that whole crazy affair, this very unorthodox strategy. Tell the people to march around the city seven times, and then seven, on the seventh day, blow the trumpets, and the walls will come tumbling down. And we tend to focus on the strategy, but there's a sequence at work here. And before Joshua receives the breakthrough, he first has to bend the knee. Before he receives the, the victory, there is a surrender that precedes that. Oh, friends, this is not just the way God worked in Joshua's life, but this is how God brings you into every new layer of victory, every area of breakthrough, because I promise you, there are areas of your life where you're facing some difficulty, some, something that is greater than you and stronger than you, and, and in your own ingenuity and in the strength of your own might, you're trying to, to think through a strategy. How am I going to defeat this? How am I going to overcome this? How am I going to gain the victory in this area of my life, but you keep running into walls. And God says, you can't fight your way to victory. You can only surrender your way to victory. Because Jesus is the commander. He has divine strategies for every problem that you're going to face in life. But he can't give those to you until you surrender to him. If you want to fight Jericho on your own, God will let you do that. (laughs) And I promise you, those walls won't come down. But in his presence are all the keys, all the answers, all the solutions to all the problems you'll ever face. So the key is surrender. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.